This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. This is the Metaphysical Connection, Episode 8, Children of Roswell, Part 1. I'm your host, Eric Renderking-Fisk. On this special episode, Walt Schnabel and I talk with Thomas Carey, co-author of the best books on the subject of the Roswell incident, which is Witness to Roswell, Inside the Real Area 51, and now the new release with his collaborator, Donald R. Schmidt, The Children of Roswell, a seven-decade legacy of fear, intimidation, and cover-ups. Since this is a great and lengthy conversation with a lot to digest, we are devoting two episodes of Minnesota Physical Connection to this interview. We'll be offering part two of this interview in episode nine, which will be available next week. Before Walt and I get started uh, with the news of the week, we also have something else to share. If you go to zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles, you can now buy your very own Metaphysical Connection coffee mug. They're available right now and with even more items on the way. And who knows? Maybe by the time you hear episode nine, we'll have a handful of other items for you to enjoy. Okay, so once again... Here's Walt Schnabel and I with our very special guest, Tom Carey. Enjoy the show. So anyway, this is the first time ever in the history of the Metaphysical Connection where we have, we're doing the pre-show after recording the show. Right. So it's the post-show, pre-show. Right. All right. It's a little ass back or bass backwards. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, listen, we, we've earned our explicit tag, so... Um, so here is that it? Is that the explicit tag? Yeah, I mean, so um, so we agreed that the interview that we just did, and you're about to hear um, the first part of yeah, the first part, the first hour. Right. We're not f- going to give it to you all at once. It's too good. To, it's it's too good. It's too good to give it to you. So exactly. To hanging. So we were thinking to ourselves, how how, how can how can we. Uh, how, how can we stretch this? And then Walt said, well, let, let, let's do some news. So right off the bat, we were talking about Hillary Clinton. I'm looking at this news story here, and I don't know why we didn't talk about this sooner. Hillary Clinton again vows to find out what the White House knows about close encounters, it, 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 uh, invading aliens, and all like... She's actually made the statement that we've been visited otherworldly being so she's actually made the statement that we've been visited by by people that are not of the i don't know what her exact statement it's pretty close to that now i don't know if people remember back to when bill bill clinton was was like his chief of staff or something okay there were two two things he wanted to have disclosure on who killed jfk right and um what the true picture was on ufo what information is of it exactly that that people don't obviously neither of those things happened because those things are still floating around in the ionosphere somewhere but um yeah but there are other presidents too Uh, apparently lyndon johnson made that kind of a statement one of the books we are going to talk about in the very near future is going to be the presidents and ufos and good that'll be a good topic that's another good topic as a matter of fact i'm going to rip you a copy sometime in the near future so, um, so who else was it? Reagan? I know had a couple yep. UFO experience. He talked about his statement was that um, one of the ways that the world would really unite 
would be if there was some kind of a threat from which from, is a, from off world. Which is a real weird thing for a, a very conservative it, it Republican I thought, president I, I to say. That at the time. That's, that's a little strange. <laughs> I don't know. But In, anyway, he was thinking along those lines. Insert your favorite <clears throat> Alzheimer's joke here. <laughs> right, right. There's nothing and, funny about Alzheimer's though. Well, that was probably after he put the shoe polish on his hair. <laughs> it's probably the, had, it might have had something to do with affecting his brain. It's the shoe know. polish in his hair that's yeah, seeping I, in. I think it might have been that, yeah. Yeah. And uh, who else was there? Who else? What did the president talk about? Oh, Jimmy oh, Carter. Jimmy Carter. Yeah, the gym. The gym star. He uh, he said he was going to look nothing. He, he probably put Billy Carter on. Messed that, that all And that was the end of it. Do you remember Billy? Do, do you remember Billy Beer? I do. I was going to bring that up. He probably had too many of those. Yeah. Lost his way. I don't want to tell you what Billy beer tasted like, but I, I never tasted it. Yeah, I said so. I'd seen cans of it. That was yeah. Just to highlight this book, and I think that you should um, definitely. It's one of those things that it should be on your shelf. The entire thing is is that every president since Truman has had something to say about UFOs, whether officially or unofficially, or whatever. And now we get this woman who's running for president. And the thing is, is that. I, I'm, I'm just going to come right out and say, I don't like Hillary Clinton that much. I don't like her. I don't trust her. I don't like the way that she talks down to people. But if I had to choose between Donald Trump, who thinks that any anybody who thinks anything about the supernatural is somehow retarded, his words, not mine, or a woman like Hillary Clinton, who is a congenital liar, wants to come right out and say, hey, I'm going to give you disclosure. I'm sorry. If I have to choose between one or the other, I, it's either... I don't know what I'll do. My head might explode. Do you think that Hillary Clinton, if she became president, would actually bring forth disclosure? Well, the thing that's curious is is why is she bringing this forward now in the, in the midst of a campaign, a primary? Does she think that's gonna Does she think that's gonna win UFO voters over? Or and I just think it's strange timing. And she's got her. Uh, her campaign manager is the, the guy that's really bringing it forward. John is it John Podesta. Uh, John Podesta. He, he's, um, he's really uh, hyping that up. John Podesta. I've convinced Hillary Clinton to declassify UFO files, and this is only maybe a month or so after the CIA released some of their own mm-hmm. X files, mm-hmm. as it were. Um, so why would they do that? What what motivation is there? I mean, I I can't imagine that's going to win over a lot of voters. Is that something they think is, you a, think is that, a talking point that's going to get people? You think that Hillary Clinton is like, you know, in, in her estate in Chappaqua saying, I wonder how I'm going to get Eric Fisk to vote for me. Probably not. I don't think so. Yeah. I'm going to get him and his evil dog, she's, too. She's, she's probably got your picture. On your yeah, with, with darts and stuff. And, <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Um, um but she, you know, she was way back. She was involved in this thing called the Rockefeller Initiative, and Bill was too. Yeah. And he and he was a he was a Rockefeller, one of the not not the Clark Rockefeller guy, like imposing as a rock. You were this guy was actually a Rockefeller. You were and talking he was, to he me. He was a leading um, financial. He was a finance capital, and he made a lot of money. As if he sure. didn't have a lot of money to begin with. He had a lot but, of. But them. money makes money, as we know. You yeah. Know? But anyway, he had this initiative to, to bring forward the, the whole UFO for whatever reason. Being a Rockefeller, I'm a little skeptical about what his intentions were. He's dead now. When Bill and Hillary were in their formative stages, they he was like their guru. I haven't really studied the whole. But there was a lot of people involved in this. Uh, Bill Richardson was, was involved with it. He's He went on to be the secretary. He was the governor of New Mexico. Oh, 
Hey. Think of that. There's a, there's a, there's a nice yeah. metaphysical connection. Yeah, there you go. Um, and a lot of other people um, were involved in it, too, you know, that you would recognize their name. Linda Moulton Howe was, was, a, yeah, was yeah. A, kind of a paranormal researcher who, who I find has a lot of credibility. But, so I, I don't know. I don't know. this. So this, my point is that this goes back quite a ways. This is not a new thing for Hillary. Or no, Bill. it's not. Or, you know, when Bill said that, everybody was like, oh, wow. I think he said it after he became president. I yeah, think, I think he did. I think. I'm going to read this to you here. Um, the headline from the Huffington Post. Um, John Podesta, I have convinced Hillary Clinton to declassify UFO files. John Podesta, campaign manager for the Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton and a longtime advocate for government disclosure of UFO files, said Clinton is ready to look into the issue. I've talked to Hillary about it, Podesta told KLAS-TV. Politics Now co-host Steve sure Sebelius. Not, sure that's not K-L-A-S-S? K-L-A, no. I just, I just, don't make me, don't make me second guess myself here, Walt. I'm just, I'm just checking. Uh, during a campaign stop in Las Vegas, um, they are still classified files that could be disclassified. He continued, I think I have convinced her that we need an effort to kind of go and look at and declassify as much as we can so that the people have their legitimate questions answered. More attention and more discussion about unexplained aerial phenomenon can help without people who are in the public life who are serious about this from being ridiculed. All of a sudden, John Podesta is now the poster child of everything that's right in politics as far as a metaphysical connection is concerned. Now, do you, you think this is the precursor for full disclosure? Do you think they're kind of setting us up for that? Out I mean, there, it seems strange to me that I'm, they would bring that into a campaign. I mean, that's, you know, of all the issues there are. I'm going to go Chris Carter here on a second for you. Okay. If there is going to be disclosure, then obviously something is going to happen after the disclosure. I think that John Podesta and a few other people honestly believe that there is going to be some huge over-the-top Arthur C. Clarke childhood's end event that's going to occur. And they're probably going to... The reason why they want to disclose everything and declassify everything is because it, let's, just, let's just say like a, a giant alien spaceship shows up over Washington, D.C. or any, name any, any large city. To the point where you cannot deny this happening. And we've been, it's been slowly happening. Like the UFO that was apparently over O'Hare Airport for a couple of hours. Um, and then you, we keep seeing like, like the, the Phoenix lights. We saw the Phoenix lights. And there's no denying that there, there's something, there was something there. Right. There was something floating over Phoenix. But so, that's nothing new. I mean, that, that's, that's been going on years and years and years and years. Right. But you hear, the point is, is that, okay, it's, be, it's becoming more grandiose and it is becoming more undeniable. Well, just today, just today, I, I, we'll talk about this a little in the podcast. Just today on Good Morning America, they, they talked about Aaron Rodgers, the yeah. quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, seeing a UFO. Yep. And it wasn't just like he saw a UFO. It was, it, first of all, he's with a couple other guys. Now they they might have been tipping a, a few Heinekens or something. I don't sure. know. But um, but he claims that he saw this huge vehicle right. in the sky. Right. And, and his friends saw it too. Yeah. And, and to the point where they said, "What the bleep is that?" Yeah. You know? So you know, granted, Aaron Rodgers is not. I mean, he he's a 
He's famous. I mean, he's he also has a lot to lose, though, because if people think that he's nuts, they may try and move him to another team or get well, maybe, him out of town. Maybe. I mean, the bottom line is whether he throws touchdowns or not. So that's not something that's going to can, jeopardize his career. He could see pink elephants so long yeah, as... Yeah, I mean, you know, athletes are not the most credible sources and things. But, but, but the point, my point is that he's, he's famous. It's not like... You or I going on? I mean, well, first of all, we wouldn't even get on Good Good Morning, right? But but you know, but but they were the the two announcers were kind of snickering about it, like mm, you know, <laughs> they're probably behind the scenes or probably saying something, right? But you know, and he's not the kind of guy. He's he's got a pretty clean record. He's not noted for being a huge party animal or womanizer or gambler, or, you know, any of those things that are a lot. A lot of times attributed to athletes, he's not professional saying, athletes. He's not. He's not. <clears throat> he's not laying down a trail of Reese's pieces. No, in no, the woods no. somewhere. So he's got some credibility, you know. I mean, above and beyond, you know, he's he's not a noted scholar or you know Harvard professor or something like that. But, right. But he does have a level of credibility, so you know maybe that's something. Yeah. What's it's it, interesting? And, and what would be in it for him to lie about it? Yeah, nothing really. Why would why would why would he, he lie? He can't get any more famous. He's not going to get any more of those double check. Who knows? You know, he might. You know, he might get some some flying saucer coming. My point is, I think there's a there's an awareness. Yeah. That's coming. You know, something's different. Yeah, but you asked <clears throat> me, Walt, why would Hillary Clinton do this? That's yeah. That's what I want. Why would she? Because the, saying the only the only reason why a politician would do something like that is that it would be a hail mary pass if there was like somebody like Bernie Sanders and he, yeah. if, if it was if it was another candidate who was losing the race. A vote for me is a vote for disclosure. But Hillary Clinton, I mean, she pretty much has the Democratic nomination already sewn up, unless something awful happens between the now and well, yeah. That's my point. Why? Why now? What, you know, okay, she gets a say. She gets elected. <clears throat> okay, maybe bring it out then. Maybe if the, that's if that's on her agenda. Okay, go the ahead. only I, I, reason I agree with that. Well, for, okay, let, let's let's. Who is Hillary Clinton? Okay, f- former first lady, former senator. Former Secretary of State. Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. If anybody would know anything about anything in this realm, who is in the position to tell the American people this, that, or the other thing, it would be Hillary Clinton. She doesn't strike me as somebody who has the personality to do that unless she knows something else is coming down the pipe. Well, that's my point. Why it's not the it's not the fact that she's you know got the got the level of experience and competence to, to have knowledge of it to some degree it's it's why now why you yeah. know, why is she doing it now what's the what's the political motivation that's that's my question it, it doesn't and, and make, that's it doesn't my, really make sense and that's my answer yeah. she knows something is coming down Maybe the pike that's, that's that's kind of what i was hoping you'd Disclo- disclosure is going to happen just before something else happened fine example is that it, is that a prediction I'm going to make a prediction. Ooh, I'm going to. Can we, can we go replay this one? You mean the same way that I play your clip of saying yeah, Eric is right? <laughs> I, 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 I try to forget about. I don't. Yeah, I, I know. I know. I'm going to tell you right now. I'm making a prediction right here, and as we're recording this, I'm going to call this. What is this? March 24th, 2016. I'm going to come right out and say that shortly after disclosure, something else huge is going to happen. Whereas it's going to have something to do with extraterrestrials or pan-dimensional beings are going to come out and say, hey, we're here. And, oh, hey, by the way, have you seen Jim Bob? Jim Bob was driving around sometime around your calendar year, 1947. He and a bunch of good old boys were were harassing the sheep and, you know, um, 
Jimmy Rick uh, crashed into the butte. Jimmy Rick. <laughs> Jimmy Rick. <laughs> That's a new one. I ever heard Jimmy Rick. Jim, Jimmy Bob. Jimmy Bob. Don't you, don't you think that aliens have rednecks well, too? And well, of course they do. Yeah, course. They, they, they must. You know, you know, they drive they, probably um, they, spaceship versions of pickup trucks. Right. They have a little thing in the back where they can keep their couch. Exactly. And, the, and, you know, and have the, alien flags waving in the back. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, of, and of course, it's like they're buzzing the sheep going, yee-haw! And they came too close to that butte, next thing you know. <laughs> too bad. Maybe that's what happened to Roswell. Maybe they were, maybe they were, maybe they were sheep, whatever their term is, you know, yeah. sheep bobbing or something. Like exactly. Seeing how close they could get to the sheep without actually skinning them. <laughs> yeah. So uh, no, I I think that the, I think something is going to come out. I think something. Well, I I, I think it would be a good it, thing. It's I, it's going to happen. I, I'd like to see it. I'm all for it. Yeah. But let's, let's get it going. Let's I, get it on. So anyway, that is the news for the week. Okay, and, that's, and, a, that's a good one, I think. And then uh, just stay tuned for an interview with one of the co-writers of some of my favorite books on the topic, uh, Witness to Roswell, Inside the Real Area 51, and uh, the latest book, Children of Roswell. Which um, everybody... Everybody should and, read. And we'll get into, when we do the show, you'll, I'll explain why I say that. Walt seems to think <clears throat> that everybody should read Children of Roswell, and I totally agree. You have to read Children of Roswell. Absolutely, and you'll understand why after the show. Exactly. It's a great show. Yeah, it is. Yeah. All right, stay tuned. All right. So anyway, um, just a, a brief introduction for people who don't know um, Tom Carey, and shame on you if you don't. He is the co-author of several books on the book on the topic um, of uh, the Roswell incident. How, how do you how do you describe the incident? I mean, what's what's the phrase that you use? Do you just say? Uh, yeah, the Roswell incident the is what most people use. Uh, everybody refers to it uh, as the Roswell incident because the first book that came out on the subject in 19, it was in 1980, was titled The Roswell Incident. And uh, everybody just sort of uses that. Uh, the, the, the little trick comes when we're writing our books, uh, do we do, when we, we refer to it, do we put it in uh, quotes or not? You know, Roswell Incident, because it is the title of the book. So what we usually do is, is we put incident in lowercase so that we don't, uh, we don't have to put it all in uh, quotes, but that—that's how we refer to it. And the incident uh, part of it is because, of course, the everybody knows. Even the Air Force admits that something happened. Yes. And just what it was is the matter of dispute. And uh, we believe it was the crash of an extraterrestrial spaceship or spacecraft where the Air Force, if you call them up today, they'll tell you it was, uh, number one, they don't want to talk about it. Yep. But number two, they'll say, well, it was a 
uh, Project Mogul balloon array, which means it was a series of these rubber weather balloons with uh, attached radar targets made out of tin foil, balsa wood, and bailing twine. And that the bodies, the little bodies that everybody who had seen them had described as being uh, three and a half to four feet tall, well, they were really these uh, six foot tall anthropomorphic dummies <laughs> yep. made out of plastic and uh, vinyl and what have you that the Air Force used in the mid-1950s during high-altitude parachute drop tests in New Mexico. Uh, never mind that it's a decade uh, afterwards. Uh, that's what they say it is. So we, uh, we claim it was a crash of a spaceship. We have over 600 witnesses who uh, have said the same thing or their descriptions, that's what they described. But the Air Force is sticking to their story uh, as uh, improbable as it is of this uh, weather balloon device, which was, a, they called it Project Mogul, and uh, the anthropomorphic dummies. And we call it the dummies from the sky yes. hypothesis. So that's well, why it's referred to as an incident. Okay. It was a two, actually, it was a two-day affair back in 47, 1947. It was a two-day affair. The first day, the, the, the Air Force put out a press release saying that they had recovered a, uh, they used the term flying saucer, which was uh, the, the whole flying saucer uh, thing started only two weeks pr prior. And uh, the... Um, uh, the next very next day, they took it all away, saying that it was a weather balloon. So that's uh, the word incident sort of, you know, sort of hits the mark. Well, here's my question, and I've, I've scoured the internet, I've scoured all of your books, and I've never really sort of gotten, um, I don't think it's an adequate answer. Um, how did you and your co-author, your, your partner, um, why Roswell, of, of, all the, of all the stories you guys could um, cover so extensively. Well, what is it about Roswell, and how, how did you how did you come to this topic? Well, that's uh, that's a good question. Um, I got in, interested, of course, in UFOs as a teenager. Read a couple books, and I was fascinated by the possibility of life on other planets. Mm -hmm. Back in the 1930s and 40s, uh, people they used to call extraterrestrials they used to refer to them as martians back then yeah the all the stories were about uh, if, if other life was out there it would be mars our nearest uh, neighbor so they referred to them as martians now we call them extraterrestrials so i'm interested in ufos as a teenager and then in 1980, I read this book called The Roswell Incident, and it just it uh, it just blew me away. Uh, we're talking about not talking about lights in the sky. We're not talking about seeing something in the sky that you couldn't explain. We're talking about a nuts and bolts craft that crashed, that had occupants, little bodies with big heads. The Air Force, the military comes in, covers it up, and they threaten people with their lives. Yeah. And the story 
is a two-day story and then it died for 30 years until 1978 when uh, Jesse Marcel Sr., the Roswell Base Intelligence Officer, broke silence by stating on his ham radio network that he had handled pieces of a flying saucer in his own hands back in 1947. And uh, so the story itself had all of these elements that was like a uh, uh, a thriller, uh, you know, like a like a uh, nonfiction thriller or a fiction thriller, but it was a something that happened real in real life. And so all of the other UFO incidents faded; they they paled in comparison for me uh, when compared to the Roswell incident. And I've been an active investigator on the incident since uh, 1991. And here I am 25 years later, still on this one case, because all these other cases, even Rendlesham, the Rendlesham Forest case over in the UK, even that, uh, even the uh, Kecksburg incident in Pennsylvania, they just, to me, they just pale in comparison because of the number of witnesses that we've been able to track down and uh, of course, we're not talking about all first-hand witnesses. Some are second-hand, some are third-hand. But that's where we get our information. And uh, it's just an exciting endeavor that I never thought I'd be involved in in my life. Uh, to on something like this, you know, reading books about UFOs, you think, oh boy, that's interesting. And then you finish the book, and that's the end of that. Yeah. But uh, here I am, uh, actually involved in something for 25 years. Uh, in college, I only got a C in English composition. <laughs> I had to work hard for that. But but uh, our latest book, uh, the law, the the uh, Children of Roswell, a seven day a seven decade. Well, I got to read the title myself here. A seven decade. Legacy. That was the word I was missing. A seven-decade legacy of fear, intimid intimidation, and cover-up. It, it's our fourth book on Roswell. And as of yesterday, it was number one in the category. They, they had a little thing on it. Number one bestseller. This is on Amazon. Yes. Number one bestseller, Unexplained Mysteries. The category in under, Unexplained Mysteries. In uh, math, science, and astronomy, it was number two. And a couple of the sort of the new age categories, it was uh, number one and number two. So that was as of yesterday. So, you know, for somebody who got a, worked hard to get a C in English composition, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, wow. You know, I, I didn't expect this. Well, first of all, you can either thank or blame Walt and, or, and I because Walt has... How many copies have you bought of Children of Roswell so far? How many copies? How many copies of, of, of Children of Roswell have you bought? Just one. Well, see, the thing is, I got you beat because the thing is, is that I have the Kindle version um, and I have the audiobook version and I sent a hard copy version to my brother um, who is also really into um, UFOs and all like that so uh, you're probably the one that sent it up to number one then I think maybe because well, I, I have to say I do plan on buying a, another copy to send to a friend of mine who's quite interested who's, in this kind of thing my friend Jim we've talked yeah about we've talked about Jim before uh, 
Tom, I, if I can jump in here for a minute, um, I'm a fiction writer. I, I have a, a, a novel out um, that's oddly enough a supernatural thriller. Shocking. Shocking, yeah. So um, I have to give you credit for, for, for a guy that only got a C plus in, in English composition. You did an excellent job of, of creating a thriller that really is, um, for, for my money, character driven. Yeah. Um, because that's the real compelling part of the book for me is that and i and i've studied fiction and how fiction is structured and and the real the real good stories are centered around characters good mm -hmm. characters that, and you, you and you've you, certainly you, done that with this book you've created characters that are that are very compelling i mean you haven't created them you've portrayed people that are ordinary people put in an extraordinary situation which is what roswell apparently was um, and that really comes through very strongly through through the book and through your characterization and your part your co-authors work as well but um, you, you did a great job of, of really bringing the people through this this incident and that's what really made it made it very well, I, very I, readable I, for me I thank you and you hit on the exact reason or, or the difference between this book that we've written and the other Roswell books we've written you you You've nailed it, uh, Walt, is that uh, we wanted character, I guess in fiction they call it character development. Exactly, yeah. We, uh, we give you, uh, in the other Roswell books that we've done, and, and all the other Roswell books on the market, it's, okay, what happened, where did it happen, when did it happen, and who was involved, and bang, 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 and that's it. In this book, we did character development uh, what were these people like what were they doing how did they feel why did they feel this way and there's a lot more character development as you so aptly just described in this book and that's what sets it apart from our other books uh, on the Roswell incident that we've done and I you, you just nailed it I think for me um, it's Eric again for all the characters in this book uh, uh, Tom um, any one of these people, whether it's Jesse Marcellus Jr., um, um, just just to name the first one, um, the, all these people, you know, could have been me. I mean, I mean, obviously, I've never been a nurse and I've never done an autopsy. But the thing is, is that if I was alive in Roswell, and I, of course, um, I've always been curious, and I've always kind of, um, if you, if there's ever a no trespassing sign, you knew full well that within 24 hours I would, be, I would be crossing that no trespassing sign. Tell me where not to go, and that's where I'm going to go. Right. Um, but the thing is, I mean, it could have so easily have been me in in any of those um, cases. Is there one character in particular that you identify with the most in Children of Roswell? Wow, that's a good. I've never. That's a good question. Uh, of course, we, you know, everyone involved. In, uh, you know, a lot of work to get them to talk, to find them, and all that. Uh, for me, I was a. Uh, growing up, I was a three-sport athlete. Yep. Baseball, football, basketball, and a little later on, ice hockey. I uh, was at the University of Toronto for four years, and. Uh, my son was at the age where he was just learning to skate and he got on a hockey team so uh, I, I fell in love with the sport of hockey so I taught myself to skate and backwards forwards slap shots you know the whole thing and so with my athletic background I guess the the, 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 the one I 
identify most with is uh, Tom Brookshire, the uh, NFL uh, defensive back. He played for the Eagles, the Philadelphia Eagles, and um, I did not know that he was from Roswell. I did not know he was from Roswell. He was a uh, all. He's in the Eagles Hall of Fame. He would have been in the NHL. NHL. There, boy, in the way. NFL. <laughs> yep, we, yep, we understand. The NFL Hall of Fame, but he broke his leg, uh, his tibia, the big bone in your lower leg, uh, in 1961, I believe. It ended his career. It was just a, a compound fracture of the tibia during a game against the Chicago Bears. And that ended his career. And what he did after that, he became the... Now, here's a guy who is just, you know, some people are just, their whole life, everything is, uh, he, he's a, he was an affable person, didn't have an enemy in the world. Mm-hmm. Everybody loved him. Uh, he had a humorous quip about everybody and everything. And he became the NFL's top announcer for uh, Sunday football games. Like, he'd be... Uh, he was paired with Pat Summerall, who was a New York Giants, mostly a place kicker. And the two of them just hit it off, and they became the top team for NFL games in the 1970s. So in in Philadelphia, we remember him mostly as an Eagles uh, uh, player and also as the announcer. But outside of Philadelphia, most people remember him, if they do remember him, as a announcer of the, the football games on Sunday afternoon. So that's what he did after his playing career was over. And after he uh, phased out of the NFL broadcasting, he started up in Philadelphia something that was new and it's still going on today is 24-7 all sports talk radio. He started that. And his uh, flagship show in the morning is still it's still the top show on the the, the sports station in Philadelphia and uh, his co-host who he handpicked is now the head uh, announcer on the show so Tom Brookshire started that mm-hmm. so a couple of years ago now Brookshire died in 2000, 2010 unexpectedly from uh, cancer I live in New Hampshire now, but I, I spent a good portion of my life in, in South Jersey. Yes. Um, so I'm quite familiar with the with the Philadelphia sports scene and and Tom Brookshire in particular. He he really was a was a, a really good guy. He at least he seemed to be, you know. Yeah. From I I was his playing days were a little bit before my my right. time, but um, but I was very familiar with him as a broadcaster, and he he was a, a really a really good guy, um, or at least he seemed to be. Um, he had a place. Uh, he had a place in Stone Harbor, New Jersey, at the Jersey Shore. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I'm real, real, very familiar with that. Yes. So, um, from the time his diagnosis uh, of gallbladder cancer to his death was like less than six months, yeah. nobody knew he was sick, and then right, then he right. was gone. Well, a couple of years ago. Oh, this is about two years before he passed away. I was down in Roswell, and I uh, because every July, uh, 
I and my co-author Don Schmidt are speakers. We are speakers at the local festival in July. They have they have a habit every year. So this time I brought my wife with me, Doreen, and uh, I said, uh, "Let me." We got there a day early. I said, "Let me show you around Roswell." Mm -hmm. Some, you know, I mean, it's not like going to Paris, France, right, or anything right, like right. that. But the, the, it's it's Roswell. So we went over to this. It's called the New Mexico Military Institute. It's a high. It's a, like a military high school, mm -hmm. and some of its uh, uh, graduates, uh, Sam Donaldson, the the uh, ABC News news anchor, right. Sam Donaldson. Right. Uh, Joel McRae, a famous actor, probably before your time, but you might see him on Turner Classic movies. Yeah, I know, I know who he is. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. in one of my favorite film noir movies, where the sidewalk ends. Where the sidewalk ends, uh, well, the one where he's uh, Huntley Haverstock, the um, foreign correspondent. Foreign correspondent, yes, yes, exactly, and uh, that fellow, and a few others. So. We're over there by the the uh, football stadium for the for the high school, New Mexico. It's just known as NMMI, New Mexico Military Institute. And uh, so I'm looking through the the open end of the stadium at the grass and the. Uh, this isn't in the summertime, so there's nobody playing football. And the stadium and all. I'm looking, and so my I hear my wife is saying, "Tom, Tom, come over here. Look at this." So I go over there and there's she's looking at this bronzed plaque about uh, one foot square. No, maybe one foot by two foot. And on it are names that I recognize as uh, NFL football players. Roger Stallback's name jumped out. A few others, that I, the names I knew. One of the names jumped out was uh, Tom Brookshire. I said, oh my God. I. He played for the Eagles. I know he wasn't from Philadelphia. And sure enough, he was from Roswell. I said, oh, my goodness. And the names on the plaque were on the plaque because those were locals that had played at least one game on that stadium's grass. They played at least one game in that stadium. And Tom Brookshire was a graduate of Roswell High School, the Coyotes. So I said, okay, uh, when I get back to home, I live in Huntington Valley, which is just outside of Philly. I said, I want to call him up. See, see, you know, I did some mental arithmetic. I said, he must have been alive during the, the famous incident. In fact, he was 16 years old at the time. So I called him up. I said, uh, I got his answering machine. So I said, okay, I got to, I got to leave a message that I know he's going to call me back. He's got to call me back. So I said, uh, hey, Tom, this, uh, my name is Tom Carey. I'm uh, just back from Roswell, New Mexico. I saw your name on this uh, list. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, you were a great Eagles defensive back. You could cover. You covered all the, the other team's best receivers, and I went through a list of them. Uh, Del Schaffner from the Giants and uh, – Sonny Randall from the Cardinals and a few others. I said, oh, and, you know, I was curious. You, you couldn't cover this little fellow from the Cleveland Browns. Oh, no. <laughs> That'll get a defensive back every time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not thinking that's going to get him. So 
So I said, but, uh, you know, that, that's, you can't cover everybody. <laughs> so within 10 minutes, my phone rings. <laughs> and uh, I'm upstairs, and I hear this, hey, Carrie, I could, too, cover Rave Renfro. I don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, I, so I quick ran down the stairs, and we talked for about an hour. And he is the, he was the nicest guy he was talking to me like he was a friend of mine. And, you know, we're talking for the first time. And, uh, uh, you know, so we, I, we went through some of the games he played to sort of, you know, and the fact that he was on the last, and it's still the last <laughs> Eagles championship from 1960. And uh, then I got around to Roswell. I said, tell me, uh, do you remember that Roswell incident? He said, oh, yeah, I remember that. And all the time we're talking is he's got this undercurrent of humor. Yeah. Know? Yep. And uh, he says, "Yeah, I remember that." He, he says, uh, "My father uh, owned a gas station right on the main the main drag in Roswell, and he got to know a number of the the airmen at the base because they would come into his father's station to fill up their gas tanks, and uh, Tom, especially in the summertime, would would." You know, be the that that's back when you had the attendant fill your gas tank. You know, it's not like today where you go in and you fill it yourself. Uh, that's that, that, the, yeah. The that, attendant that, would come out and fill your gas tank, and that in the summertime that was Tom Brookshire, the sixteen-year-old. And and so would, he got the, the number of the guys from the base. And they would actually wash your windshield too. Oh, they, they actually <laughs> washed your windshield and and uh, changed, uh, checked your oil. I remember one time my father's, I was taking the car. He says, "Have get the get the oil check. Make sure you get the oil check." Well, he only gave me fifty cents for gasoline, so I just gave the guy fifty cents for gasoline, and it was pouring rain, pouring rain. I said, "Can you check the oil?" <laughs> and the look on his face—it'll get you dirty. You know, I wouldn't be here right now. Right. Exactly. But, uh, uh, this and it was an old Studebaker, and he got soaked. But anyway, uh, so Tom said uh, that uh, yes, he remembered it. He said uh, it was a, a curious thing. He said when this happened, it was like an iron curtain had fallen around the base, had come down and sealed off the base because nobody could go in or get out, and this lasted a number of days, almost a week. And he said, when that curtain lifted, the airmen who came to his father's station weren't the same anymore. They no. wouldn't talk to you. The, they just didn't want to get into any conversation at all. He said, and he, he couldn't understand that. He said, uh, the, the whole relationship between the town of Roswell and the base, the air base just south of it, had changed, and it was never the same after that. So that was one thing he told me. I said, well, you know, did you have any other contacts or firsthand experience, of, you know, with, with uh, what happened? He said, oh, yeah. A number of my friends, uh, he says, I was over the gas station one day, and uh, one, of, one of my friends said, hey, do you know what Roy Tyner has? Yeah, have you seen what Roy Tyner has? Now, Roy Tyner uh, was a welder. He had his own shop not far from the, the service station where Tom had worked. 
he's got this piece of metal that just does funny things. So they they had to go see for themselves. At least Tom did. So they went over to Roy Tyner's shop, and they you know he's in there welding away. And uh, he sees the kids. He said, "Well, what do you guys want?" He said, "We want to see that. We want to see that piece of metal you have." He says, "Oh." okay because he figured he's not going to get rid of them until he shows them so he goes over to his his desk now if, if you know a welder shop that it's grease all over the place and the you know the desktop is greasy well he reaches into one of the drawers on the desk desk pulls out something and he wads it up in his hand he goes over to the boys he says okay now watch this, and he holds it out at shoulder length high, his, his right arm straight out there, and he opens his hand and unfurls this, looks like a piece of aluminum, very thin aluminum. It just folds right out without a, without a crease, and it just hangs there by itself, floating in the air instead of falling to the ground like a you know yeah. piece of aluminum wood it just floats there and he and so he grabs it again and wads up in his hand and they say do that again do that again so he does the same thing and it just floats there and my goodness where did you get that somebody gave it to me from a they said a flying saucer crashed north of town and they, they gave me a piece of this now get out of here get out of here okay okay so the boys left, and uh, so Tom described that to me. And, uh, and when he died, and that was the, that was really those two things were the the two firsthand experiences that he told me that day. Well, later on, when I was, you know, I had always I I had another conversation with him a few months after that, and I always planned to go back to do a video interview mm -hmm. of Tom but uh, it just goes to show never put off what until uh, tomorrow what you can do today because he died before I was able to get over there for a sit down video interview but upon his passing I read uh, a uh, testimonial from uh, a, a fellow who was like the head of the they call it the the Philadelphia Pioneer Broadcasters, and Tom Brookshire is, is in, has been inducted into the Philadelphia Broadcast Pioneers. That's what it's called. So I talked to the head of that, who had written a obituary, uh, a, a testimonial when Tom died, and in his testimonial he mentioned a time when he was talking to Brookshire. Well, well, they both had their wives, and, and this fellow's wife was from uh, uh, Carlsbad, New Mexico, which is about uh, 70 miles south of Roswell. And so the subject of Roswell came up because this fellow's wife was from New Mexico. And he said, he asked Tom about it. He says, well, and Tom says, well, you know, at the time a reporter came up to me and wanted to know what I thought about all this. And this is... Tom didn't tell me this, but I got this from the article. He said, uh, what do you think about this? And uh, Tom was with a group of his friends again. He says, well, uh, where did it crash? Did it crash near uh, uh, Carlsbad? 
uh, high school because Carlsbad High School was the chief rival in football to Roswell High School. So Tom's thinking, oh, maybe it crashed at Carlsbad High School and it killed all their football players. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, did it, did it crash there? And he said, well, no, it didn't. Well, then then we wouldn't be interested in it. Uh, uh, unless it crashed there and killed all the players, we, would, we wouldn't be interested in it. Self-serving so motive there. About that for a while. So um, there was one other episode, and um, I mentioned it to Tom after the fact, but I remember it well because it was like the NFL game of the week somewhere in the 1970s. I guess it took place somewhere in the 1970s. I'm watching this game. It wasn't an Eagles game, and for some reason, it was. Uh, I was watching some other game that was on. On the Eagles game must have been blacked out. I guess is what happened. Yeah. And all of a sudden, there was this commotion in the stands, and there was just a every the big commotion in the stands, and the the camera panned up to the sky and here hanging over the football stadium was this thing was spinning like a top just spinning nobody and to this day i don't know what it was and nobody nobody else knew what it was but tom brookshire who was the announcer that day he said he he broke the tension he says take me to your leader (laughs) well (laughs) i that sort of broke tension in the uh camera went back to the game but the it was never mentioned in the write-up of the game but i still remember that and i still don't know what that was well i'll, I'll tell you what the air force will tell you what it is <laughs> <laughs> weather balloon yeah there, there was an interesting uh, little piece on good morning america this morning aaron Rodgers, the quarterback from the packers saw a ufo yeah did, did you see that yeah that was, that was i was i was actually reading that and, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things yeah. i wanted i wanted to talk about later in the show but, my, uh, uh, my co-author is a Green Bay Packers fan. Well, there you go. <laughs> right outside of Milwaukee. He knows some of those players. But, you know, the funny thing is that the anchors on the on Good Morning America were kind of snickering about it. Like, you know, oh, here's See, Aaron Rodgers, you know. They, the mainstream media, if exactly. it's not yeah. UFOs at all, it's that's, tongue-in-cheek. That's my point. Snicker, yeah. snicker. Exactly, exactly. So tell me what. Tell me about uh, Aaron Rodgers. What, what, well, what is this? He and a couple of his buddies saw this big, huge object in the sky. And uh, it it was there and then it kind of wasn't there you know? yeah and 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 they were just looking at it and they were they were dumbfounded by it that you know the final comment that he made was they said what the bleep was that you know? exactly and, and how, uh, how long ago was that uh, what this past weekend recent, maybe? yeah it was yeah. very recent yeah oh because i'm you know i'm constantly in touch with my co-author up up there and uh he's outside of milwaukee and uh, we're actually going to have a conference call later on today and I will bring that up. Yeah, maybe I'm can, sure he knows about it. Maybe we can get Aaron on. That would be that would be pretty. Yes, good. yes. Get everybody in on the on the on the show here. So what, where did uh, on what show did Aaron Roger? What, what show did they mention this on? This was Good Morning America this morning. This morning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was okay. very recent. So apparently I, it happened I, pretty I will, recently. I'll bring that up. I will bring that up to him. Good to know. Because he's a big Green Bay Packers fan. He, I mean, he know he knew. He knew a lot of the, well, he knows a lot of the, the players now and before, so uh, I'll, I will bring that up. Well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> said, said like a true uh, Eagles fan. <laughs> um, 
Tom, I wanted to ask you, was, was, was Brookshire at all reluctant to talk to you about the, the part about the metal? Because it seems like the majority of the people that you've interviewed were were very hesitant to, that, to really come good, forward with anything. That's a good question, because unlike most of the others, see, Tom's nature was to find humor in everything. Mm -hmm. And he is one person, maybe the, so far, maybe the only one that the, that the incident did not affect him adversely because he looked at everything as as a as a humorous quip that's the way he was uh, that's the way he did his uh, re uh broadcasting and his uh, radio show and when i talked to him it was like he was uh like i'm talking to you right. and uh, right. uh he had no adverse effects whatsoever and i would venture to say that until I brought up the subject with him, he I would guess he never thought about it. He never gave it another thought. Yeah. Right. Well, well one, of, one of the things that we wanted to bring up, because um, um, like I said, when I, when I reviewed um, a Witness to Roswell, I said that um, um, even though it was a lengthy, in-depth book, I, I just didn't want it to end. And then, and then, and and then you thrust children upon, of of Roswell upon upon us, and I was incredibly grateful for that. Um, but one of the, in between, in between was inside the real area fifty one. And I and I want I really want to be able to talk to you about that in a little bit. But the one thing that Walt and I had noticed in um, every, every anything and everything to do with with uh, Roswell and the government cover up is that if you were to strip away the aspect of this being an alien craft and take away the extraterrestrials. And, and, and the um, uh, miracle metal, I guess you would call it. This is really about a story about the government basically saying in this, in this emergency, uh, civil rights and the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, it just doesn't exist. And um, so many people within the military just sort of like resorted to, I think what Walt called it yesterday, Gestapo um, tactics. Um, is that how you feel as well? Do you feel as if the government? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, they uh, they threw out the uh, the Bill of Rights and the fact that the military has no jurisdiction over civilians outside of a time of war or if martial law had been declared for some sort of emergency. Those are the only two times in the in our country where the military. Uh, can order you around that can uh, have jurisdiction over you time of war like World War II uh, um, and um, time of martial law where there's you know like a earthquake or something like that where they bring in the you know you know what I mean I know exactly what you mean uh, but in, in, in this case they not only uh, applied jurisdiction illegally it was not very nice. Yeah, the, what they did was criminal. It was criminal to to threaten people with with their lives and and the the ultimate obscenity of threatening children. Mm -hmm. Lives right. that was just right. it's unconscionable. Yeah. It's unconscionable. Mm -hmm. And they, they destroyed did. lives. They they and literally all, destroyed lives. All for a weather balloon. All for a weather well, balloon. So, ironically, that. That aspect in itself, the, the military's response to the whole thing, kind of almost backhandedly proves that, you know, what they were covering up was something really extraordinary. 
it wasn't a weather balloon. It wasn't anything mundane like it, that. It, it couldn't was, have been a why, weather balloon. Why would they have a response like that to, to cover up something mundane? They were covering up something that was had a huge you, import to it. You probably don't know this, but at the time of the Roswell incident, there were three, let's see, three other balloon events or three actual, uh, I'll just not, uh, three actual balloon events, one in California, uh, near Bakersfield, one in upstate New York, and one in Circleville, Ohio, where uh, people uh, actually found what the what the air and we think these might have been the progenitors of the weather balloon explanation, but mm -hmm. they actually found a rubber weather balloon with a tin foil radar target attached. The exact type you found in those photographs of General Ramey and Jesse Marcel in Ramey's office with the weather balloon and the radar target. Three of them actually came down right at the time. Uh, one was before the actual incident, maybe by a day or two, and the other two were right after. And there was no, so there was no reaction like you had in Roswell. Basically, they told, told the people, oh, you can keep those, just keep them. You know, rubber weather balloon, tinfoil radar target, we use them all the time. Just, uh, you know, we'll send somebody out if you want us to, but you can keep them. We don't want them. And, and as you chronicled in in uh, in your books, is that the ranchers used to find weather balloons all the time, and they would have to um, pick them up and and dispose of them properly, or or put them out of the way so the uh, the cows or the sheep or whatever they had wouldn't wouldn't uh, eat the rubber and right. and, and, and die. And and uh, for me, it's it's uh, I'm. Nothing personal, Uncle Sam, but I, I'm I'm really insulted that you think that I, that we are that stupid to believe this shenanigans. Out on the ranch, the uh, you know we've been to the crash sites many 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 times, and uh, at the, one of the sites involved in this case, there's an old water abandoned water well, mm -hmm. and it's filled to the top with rubber weather balloons that they had uh, retrieved over the decades. They get them all the time. They get them all the time because you had uh, south of, south of town. You had this air base that back in '47 that it housed the 509th Bomb Group, which which was uh, the group that ended World War II by dropping two atomic bombs. Yeah, on Japan. the 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 elite. The the these people were no slouchers, and right, there were they no were dummies. The best we had in the military. Everybody had a top secret clearance. They were the best we had. Now, to, and I'm sure people at the time didn't think of this. They probably didn't even know the 509, what what they, right. you know, what their background was. But when they came out with the weather balloon story, you have to think, if you think about it, oh my goodness, the 509, these these airmen who who found this wreckage and declared it a flying saucer. They have their fingers on the atomic trigger. They're the only group in the world with atomic weaponry. And they can't tell the difference between a weather balloon made out of rubber, tin foil, bailing twine, yeah. and balsa wood. They can't tell the difference between that, which any six year old could. Six year old might know it's might not know it's a weather balloon, but they can recognize rubber and balsa wood and all that sort of stuff. 
They can't tell the difference between that and a spacecraft that has traveled the stars. They can't tell the difference between that and they got their fingers on the atomic trigger. That doesn't make me too comfortable. No, the, un- the unintended consequence of a really stupid, foolish lie. That's the only way that you could... I mean, I mean, what they do? I mean, did they panic? Did they did they just jump to the first thing that they could think of? I mean, it was just like it just seems really stupid. I mean, if, if they, they had said, if they had said, it's well, see, because you can explain away strange metal. Oh, that's uh, that's one of our new alloys that we use in our brand new F eighty six fighter jet exactly what that wreckage was but the little bodies they couldn't explain away the little bodies with the big heads that people had seen they they couldn't explain that away and of course the press stories never mentioned bodies they just mentioned wreckage yeah so uh they 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 were able and like i said if they said it said it had been from a like a, a top secret uh because at the time they were testing the flying wing the uh, Bell X-1 uh, Douglas Skyrocket, which was the first, cra- uh, first uh, uh, you know, plane to go faster than sound. Uh, they could have explained it away that way, but they came up with this cockamamie weather balloon story, which is so different from what was first described. Had they stuck to the, well, it's a advanced uh, experimental aircraft that we have. That, we would not be here today because everybody would have believed that um, hands down. But the weather balloon is so far afield that it just makes you scratch your head. What what are they saying here? Well, um, one of my favorite theories until I read your book was that um, um, through Operation Paperclip, we brought back a lot of um, experimental equipment from the Germans and um, and. Uh, a lot of people had had pointed that um, the Nazi flying wing jet that they, that they had, um, the sort Hort, of like the Horton uh, two two nine. Exactly, and the thing is, is that it was like you could have easily said, "Hey, if you saw that flying in the sky, jet propelled, jet propelled," you would have said, "Oh, hey, that that's that's a flying saucer," because who who had ever seen a flying wing like that, like a wedge shape, right? And it was just made out, of, made out of plywood, um, and it, you're right. It was a very advanced design. The question, I believe, there were only two prototypes yeah. made, and one was brought to the United States. But I don't think it was uh, at that time. It was not flying, and uh, but you're right. If it had been seen in the sky, it would have been something that people did not we're not familiar with it's like an, an 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 explanation that's that sort of serves all sorts of purposes well yes. the thing we had to get like oh since since it's such a small little craft we had to get a really small pilot for it i mean it it it, it writes itself almost and then but then the thing that you just you cannot excuse away is first of all they they tried so hard to convince us that it was something mundane but the thing is, it was so mundane that their their overreaction, of course, drew, drew even more attention to it. And then you have other authors out there um, who say that it wasn't a weather balloon, it wasn't a test, it was it was something, 
even more advanced, or they were, or they were just testing to see. Um, you know, it was it was a it was a social experiment, and they were trying to. The military was trying to figure out how how far could they go in violating people's civil rights, and you know, in the event of a martial law. And the thing is, is that I mean, that doesn't even hold water. So I I I, I don't know what to say about that. It's it, it's, in, it's suggestive of just how panicked the military was, and the best quote that I have in regards to that came from the daughter and here we go with the you know children of roswell mm -hmm. this is the daughter of one of the officers on the roswell base he was his name was major patrick saunders mm -hmm. major patrick saunders he was a base adjutant sort of like a you know sort of like a go he was in charge of housing and things like that but he was put in charge by the base commander to, after the incident had died down, to vacuum everything, all the, all of the files, any notes were taken, any uh, uh, telexes, any letters, any stationery with anything about this event. His job was to clean all that out, leave no trace of it. And according to his daughter, he was very proud of that. So we know that's where the cover-up started, right there on the Roswell base. But she went further than that. She says, "Well, Dad, why did why did you cover it up? I mean, what, what you know?" She's asking him this in the nineteen uh, early nineteen nineties. She's asking him this, mm -hmm. and you know, our attitudes have changed since the forties. That we're everybody's more or less accepting that there's other life out there, and there. I don't think there'd be that much of a big shock that uh, if if someday it was revealed, but. She's asking him in the '90s, why did why was this? Why did you cover this up? You know, we we understand about life in the universe. There's got to be other life. He said, "Well," he told her, "We were faced with a technology greater than our own, mm -hmm. and we didn't know what their intentions were. So that was the that was the panic." The other panic was, do we reveal this to the public or keep it covered up? Well, I believe the, the, the cover-up was initiated by the Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force, uh, Hoyt S. Vandenberg, who ultimately, actually in a few months, would become the Chief of Staff of the, of the Air Force, four stars, Lieutenant General. He was he was terrified because he remembered that 1938 War of the Worlds yeah. radio show with uh, Orson Welles, the uh, old H.G. Uh, Wells uh, story, and uh, they put it to uh, the, the, the Mercury Radio, Mercury Radio of the Air show, and in the East Coast there was panic on the East Coast near Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Yep. My and, father, uh, my uh, father always talked about that as being a real, a real a panic. Monument. People were panicked. The monument there now. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but Hoyt Vandenberg was a, afraid of that, just like Winston Churchill in World War II was afraid of seeing dead British soldiers wash up on the beach of uh, 
of uh, Great Britain in, in, if they failed in their attempt at uh, Normandy, the, the invasion. So, so he, they, that, they had that fixation. Mm-hmm. And so Vandenberg convinced President Truman, we got to cover this up. We can't have panic in the streets. We don't want the Soviets to get a hold of uh, any information that this, this might yield. Uh, you know, we don't want them to be able to exploit any of the technology. So between between that and the panic in the streets, and uh, uh, it was covered up, and that's where the cover up started, and it's still with us today. Well, that is the perfect segue for another one of your books. Um, by the way, congratulations on writing three of my favorite books on this topic. Of, of uh... I, I am humbled. I am humbled <laughs> with that. You know, for getting a C plus in English composition at the Temple. Yeah. <laughs> I am gratified. Thank you. Well, the thing well, Eric, is, Eric didn't tell you those are the only three books he's ever read. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, hey, Walt, I know where Sorry, you live. I, know, I couldn't resist. I know where you live and where you work. So, but the thing is, is that a, another phenomenal book that I think that everybody needs to read is Inside the Real Area Fifty One, and you start out that book talking about the other government cover-ups. Whereas there are so many other things going on, well, I mean Roswell is the is is the granddaddy of them all. But the thing is, is that there was other stuff that was, I guess, could we say it was flying falling out of the sky or whatever? And of course, they needed some place to put all this stuff. Right. And where do they put it? They put it in um, Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Yes, yes. Uh, the the other area, the the real area, you know, see. Uh, the Area 51 near Las Vegas, let's call it. Yep. <laughs> that one, that one was actually they started construction on that in 1955 because we were developing the these spy planes. This mm-hmm. is before satellites, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it was to develop the U-2 uh, Dragon Lady, I believe they was called the U-2 high flying spy plane that became most famous when uh, Francis Gary Powers, his uh, his crashed in 19, well, it was shot down by the Russians in 1960, and it became famous. But the reading public didn't make any connection between, air, uh, the, the term wasn't even known, Area 51. Yeah. It just knew about this spy plane that we had, and they didn't know where it came from, how it was developed, or, or anything like that. Because it was a politi- an international uh, incident involving uh, the Russians and the United States. So, but Area 51 near Las Vegas was created to develop these spy planes. The other famous one was the SR-71 Blackbird, mm-hmm. uh, which came along in the 60s. But again, the because it was a, a dubbed a fighter plane, which it really wasn't, um, it flew higher and faster than the U-2. Uh, Area 51, again, was not on anybody's radar, not to use a pun, but uh, it wasn't until 1988 that a fellow named um, Robert Lazar came forward. Yeah. And, and said that he worked at this place in Nevada called Area 51, where he worked uh, on flying, captured or downed the uh, recovered flying saucer technology. And that's when Area 51 came into the lexicon, was because of Robert Lazar. Now, 
our the point of our book was that before there ever was an Area 51, which might have housed extraterrestrial technology and perhaps uh, biology, all that stuff went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio for decades. And uh, it was there because Wright-Patterson, and it still might be the most important Air Force Base that we still have. It's where all the intelligent, at least in the 40s and 50s and 60s and what have you, all the intelligence was there, the engineering was there, the uh, the foreign technology division, which is of most interest to us because anything of a foreign technology, which was supposed to be, well, during World War II, it was the Axis technology, Germany, J Japan, and Italy. Uh, we you know, we back-engineered uh, Messerschmitt uh, fighting planes and uh, Japanese Zeros. We wanted to get our hands on a Japanese Zero in the worst way. That's where the back-engineering took place. It was at Wright-Patterson mm -hmm. where you, you, you broke them down piece by piece to find out what made them tick and how we could make our planes better to defeat them in battle. That's what the whole foreign technology uh, concept uh, was uh, founded. Well, here in, in Roswell in 47, you have the real foreign technology. You know? I don't think you get any fur foreigner than that. So it was only natural that all that wreckage and the, and the biological, the bodies went to Wright-Patterson. So the book is about the real Area 51. It's a play on words that Wright-Patterson was really Area 51 before there was an Area 51. Exactly. So all that foreign technology that was really foreign went because they were already in that business. They were already in that business from World War II. So, uh, so we go into to uh, the pe what people have had have seen there and uh, when things were built, and uh, uh, we talk about. Uh, I and I I wrote the chapter on. Uh, uh, what was that? Hangar 18, the yeah. famous Hangar 18. The infamous Hangar 18. We, de we demystified that. And uh, so, that actually, that book, that, you know, our, our present book, The Children of Roswell, shot to number one in several categories. Area 51 uh, shot to number one in, in Amazon's astronomy and space sciences category, which to us, was it just uh, we really felt proud of that because you as you know yourself uh, books about ufos are usually either in the occult section mm -hmm. or the new age section which always and, frustrates me the, the woo woo section the woo woo yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and, and which is unfortunate 51 book went to number one in the um astronomy and space sciences and we just felt very we still feel very proud of that I, the thing is is that um i consider really all all of the books um sort of like um it's quintessential they're the they're the perfect books to to uh, to give to your skeptic uncle who who doesn't believe this and it was just like um you have to read these and then your skepticism will just will just vanish Anyway, Walt is itching here. He's got a question that he's dying to ask. Well, I want to I want to kind of 
channel back to the children of Roswell because I, I, I just found the, the storyline so compelling. Um, <clears throat> can you give us a, a kind of a brief overview of some of the main characters that were were really devastated by this by this incident and and the um, ensuing cover up by the military and that that um, cover up is still reverberating through these families I think years and Even years today, later yeah, you know yeah. um, people are still reluctant to to talk talk about it and you brought up numerous incidences where people would sort of give you an opening and then the next time you talk to them they would be like no we don't want to have anything to do with you you know so so there's a real fear factor here that that i think really impact impacted a lot of these people um for for years and years and years going you know yes, going past uh, the event actually three <clears throat> come right to mind there's a lot there's there's uh, tons uh, yeah you know yeah. and there's still some out there that uh we have not found and, and sure. they're not coming sure. forward 99% of the, the people that you read about in our books, we have found on our own. They don't come forward and say, oh, here I am. I was involved. Interview me. We, that's, that's not what happens. Right, right. So uh, I'll give you, uh, well, three come to mind. Uh, the, the, one, the one is uh, a chapter that I wrote about the Wilcox family. Mm, yeah, sheriff, that's, a big, that's a big one, yeah. That, the, that, uh, really, um, that really that um, really moved me. The the devastation that that created for that man. Yes, absolutely destroyed him. Mm -hmm. Absolutely destroyed him. He was fluent in Spanish. Now the sheriff of Chavez County is uh, the 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 main office is in Roswell. It's still there. And uh, he was fluent in Spanish, and the the local. Hispanic population and some of the ranchers around Roswell who were Hispanic who either knew about the bodies or had seen them, them themselves got out to the crash site and had seen the bodies or knew the or knew people who had seen them they were targeted by the military for special attention any any anybody that had seen the bodies was targeted for special attention but the Hispanics they said, okay, uh, Sheriff, you're, you're fluent here. They know you. Here's what we want you to tell them. Tell them if, if they ever talk about what they know or had seen, especially about the bodies, that they will be killed and that their whole families will be killed. So the sheriff, who later on said that, that calling the base first, was his biggest mistake when Matt, when Mac Brazel came into town with all this wreckage, he called the base rather than calling the media. He said he should have called the media first. They would have gotten out there, and the story would not have been covered up. I totally agree. I, I I totally agree, and I'm really I'm 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 just sad thinking about all the opportunities that we missed yes. because he 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 made the wrong decision. I'm sorry. Yes, yes, but you know the thing the thing is though. Uh, Roswell at the time was a a city of about twenty five thousand, but on the base was another ten to fifteen thousand people. They contributed mightily to the economy of Roswell. The military did. So my guess, I'm just guessing here, is that he thought, oh, I don't want to offend the base. I want to keep the base on good terms with us because they contribute so much to our economy. He called the base first. 
And he said it was the biggest mistake he ever made in his life because he didn't know they were going to cover it up and let, let alone make him go around to the townsfolk of Hispanic origin and threaten them with death. So when uh, when the story sort of uh, was, was died down a bit, the, the press conference, the weather balloon press conference had taken place uh, and all of the the citizenry had been uh, uh, first, uh, you know, first it was, oh, it's a national security item, uh, be a patriot. And then, you know, some of the people got the death threats. In comes the military into the sheriff's office one day. They had surrounded the office and they were looking for a box of wreckage that Mac Brazel had left with the sheriff. And as soon as they found out about it, they rushed over to the sheriff's office they, they put the sheriff in a hammerlock, his arm behind his back, shoved him up against the wall, and they said, where is it? Where is that box? You know, now this, this is the sheriff of Chavez County. This is a guy who's basically in charge of everything. They're shoving him up against the wall like a common criminal and uh, saying, okay, where is the box? So they, uh, the sheriff pointed out it's over here in his closet over here. So they, they took the box of wreckage. They sat down, Sheriff Wilcox, with his wife. And they said, okay, you did, a, you, know, you did a good job for us, but we're telling you, if you talk about this to anybody, we're going to kill you, your wife, and your children and grandchildren. We're, you're all going to be killed if you don't keep quiet about this. So, uh, and then they leave. Well, a day or two later, there's a phone call. They want to see Sheriff Wilcox out at the base. Obviously, they think, well, geez, maybe maybe we got to give him another dose. Exactly. Yeah, uh, so uh, we get this story from one of his grandchildren. Again, the children of Roswell. We get this story from one of his grandchildren, his granddaughter. Barbara Duggar, and she had gotten it from her her grandmother Inez, the sheriff's wife. Big mom, right? Yep. Mom, big mom, and uh, she said, uh, "Big mom told Barbara Duggar, yes, they called they called uh, George out to the base, but this time he took two people with him because he didn't know what they wanted him for, and so he came back later uh, later that afternoon, according to Inez." She said he looked like he had been roughed up again. He had this long stare, and he was roughed up. His hair was disheveled, and he said, I don't want to be sheriff anymore. Can I don't you, want to be sheriff. Him? He never ran for sheriff anymore. His wife, out of, uh, she was so bitter about this and angry at the Air Force, the government, she ran in his place, and she almost won. And she said that the, the reason she lost was that her opponent kept uh, harping on the, uh, oh, that family's crazy because they were involved in that uh, UFO fiasco. And, but she almost won. And to her dying day, she told her, her uh, granddaughter, she believed that the Air Force had done something to him. That's yeah, snuffed out his life. Didn't didn't she uh, almost think that they had given him something to bring on um, 
early Alzheimer's or uh, yes. that affected him like drugs were involved. mentally somehow and he yes. he actually physically attacked her at one point given him some sort of shot right. that brought on an early onset of Alzheimer's and he died in 1961 at uh, he was around 60 years old I died which you know he's not that old but uh, he had been suffering from Alzheimer's for a while and uh, we also interviewed uh, George's namesake grandson, George uh, Wilcox Jr. Uh, there's a lot more to this uh, that that uh, we got from George Jr. But I'm, you know, I want to save something for the book. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that Can family you... suffered. That family suffered were... over the years, just uh, really because he it, it destroyed the sheriff. He never ran for office again, and uh, his wife uh, was very bitter to, to, until she died. And uh, so that that's one story. I wrote that almost a, It was almost a legacy that was yeah. brought down through the generations in that family. Um, there was a couple other characters, too. Uh, Mac Brazell was an interesting guy. Uh, D. Proctor was, a, was an interesting guy. Uh, he, he was a little kid, I guess, when the... Uh, Dee Proctor was seven years old. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In 1947, he was with Mac Brazel when he discovered the wreckage. Right. And uh, he died in uh, uh, he died in 2006 at the age of 66. He was morbidly obese and uh, an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Broken, he a turned broken into man. An alcoholic. He every time we came came near to try to interview him he'd take off so we never did get to interview him about this uh, Kevin Randall says uh, he was Don uh, he wrote a book early on with Don Schmidt in 1991 which was a which was an excellent book which reopened the case uh, he inadvertently he was calling uh, Dee Proctor's mother Loretta and uh, D picked up the phone, so he was able to ask D a few questions, and he basically is giving one-word answers and hung up. But we never did get to to talk to him. Uh, his mother said that the, at the time he came home one day, he had this faraway look on his face, and he whatever she asked him, he didn't want to talk about it, and he never he never did, except one day in 1994. Loretta Proctor, his mother, and she's she only died recently. She must have been near a hundred years old, but she had a blood clot in her neck. In 1994, they didn't know if she was going to live or die. You know, you got a blood clot in your neck that goes to your brain or it goes to your heart, and you're dead. Uh, so he D comes home, and all of a sudden he bundles his mother up, puts him plops her into his pickup truck and they go bouncing out into the desert <laughs> you know and she's near death what <laughs> what on earth is he doing what's so important what's so important that he can do this to his mother who is on her deathbed <clears throat> unfortunately it, it turned ultimately she lived longer but he didn't know that at that time she, she, he drove her and she's she's thinking where is he taking me where is he taking me she thought it might be out to the debris field site so well he turned off so, she, so it wasn't there he was going somewhere else 
he took her to a site then we have a picture of it in the book and there's a picture of me standing there on top of this low bluff it's two miles east of the debris field site that Mac Brassel found and so he gets out of the car and and uh, I guess he just opens the door and says mom here's where Mac Brazel found something else and he points to this low bluff now what could that something else be that was so important that he takes his deathbed mother drives her out into the desert and let me tell you there no I don't know if you've ever driven in the desert oh, out there oh yeah there's no, there's no paved highways yeah it's desolate yeah, yeah. especially bouncing, that area <clears throat> bouncing up and down uh, could it you know could have shaken loose that blood clot you know you never know but uh, <laughs> but it was that here's, important here's where mac found something else well did did, did d um actually see the alien bodies i i it kind of yes. alluded to that mm -hmm. yes yes he because did. Okay. we know from other uh people who were children and friends with d that uh uh they followed Mac out one day. Uh, I'm guessing that he found the body site. This is the called the D. Proctor body site, that low bluff. That he found the body site not that first day, but on another day. He must have seen like uh, birds of prey, buzzards or something, circling off in the distance. You know, over something dead. So he probably thought it was one of his sheep or something, but it wasn't. It were it, we believe there were two bodies, and we get this from other stories. We believe two bodies were found at the D. Proctor body site, and that was the something else. I mean, wh why would D. take take his mother there just to say, "Oh, he found some wreckage here"? I mean, that that's not you know, you have a whole field of wreckage somewhere else. Why? What's a few more pieces of wreckage to take his deathbed mother there? But he said, "Here's where Mac found something." else which to me means something other than wreckage yeah he probably needed to get that off of his chest or, yes. or release yes. it somehow you know he couldn't or, tell anybody or, or at least explain hey mom here's the reason why I, I am the way i am now and it was just like it was I, the way i read it was he was trying to say to his mom i'm sorry i've been so aloof i'm sorry i've been so distant here's the reason why it was like yeah. a, like a demon he was carrying around yeah, like he of, like he was exercising right, some right, demon exactly yeah that's yeah. the way i read it too that was that was very uh, a very powerful se section of the yeah, book have, i really like that picture of the site uh in the book uh, taken by me uh of the of the bluff and then someone took a picture of me i actually went up on that bluff uh, not long ago, so that picture, the, the second picture is uh, uh, actually fairly recent of mm -hmm. me standing there pointing to the spot where the aliens, we believe they were blown out when the ship exploded. We believe it was either an internal explosion or an external explosion possibly caused by a lightning strike where it, the outer shell of the ship exploded and two, two of the occupants were thrown out and fell down on that low bluff and were, were killed. This is the perfect place to pause this conversation with Mr. Carey, and we will pick up right where we left off. In part two, Mr. Carey shares with us more stories from the children of Roswell, certain aspects of the government cover-up, 
and what their stories say about what they think of us, the average citizens. And he also talks about the future of disclosure and what that might mean for society. He also leads out his roadmap towards his future projects. Once again, that's in part two, coming up in one week. Before I sign off, I would like to thank him and his publisher, New Page Books, for arranging this interview. Until next time, with part two of our interview with Tom Carey, this is Eric Renderking-Fisk reminding you to keep your chins up and your fedoras on. Thanks for listening. This has been the Metaphysical Connection with your hosts, Eric Renderking-Fisk and Walt Schnabel. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the unexplained, the paranormal, and the supernatural phenomenons. You can learn more about us on our webpage. Right now it is metaphysical.fedorachronicles.com where you can find links to our Facebook and Twitter page. This is also a great way to catch up on past shows, find out what we'll be talking about next time, and drop us a line and tell us how much you love this show and what topics you want us to tackle next. That's also a great portal for all of you to let us know if you'd like to be a guest on our show with a great story or to promote a book that you've written or a documentary that you have filmed. The Metaphysical Connection is a product of the Fedora Chronicles Network, copyright 2016, all rights reserved.